Good morning. I'm Dan Crocker, and you're listening to NPR News. Thanks for joining us this morning. This past June, a heat dome settled over Seattle, pushing temperatures in that normally temperate city above 100 degrees. Wildfires have torn across the West over the past few summers. For six straight years, more hurricanes than usual have pummeled the Atlantic coast. And this past winter, storms took out power across Texas. Many parts of the country are feeling the impacts of climate change. And as extreme weather worsens, more people will think about moving out of harm's way. But where will people go? Minnesota and other northern states have become likely destinations. We've experienced our own heat wave, drought, and wildfire smoke this summer. But the overall impact of extreme weather across the northern U.S. is projected to be less severe and less immediate. And that's why some climate refugees are already moving to the state and why more may be on the way. So today we're talking about climate migration. And I want to hear from you, too. Have you moved because of extreme weather or climate threats? Do you know someone who has or is thinking about it? The phone lines are open. Give us a call at 651-227-6000. Or you can tweet me at Dan underscore Crocker. That's spelled K-R-A-K-E-R. Let's bring in our guest. Jamie Alexander is the director of Drawdown Labs at Project Drawdown. It's a climate-focused organization. And she's also a climate migrant herself. Last summer, she moved her family from the Bay Area to escape wildfire smoke there. And they now live here in Duluth with me. Welcome, Jamie. Appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. Also joining us, Abram Lusgarden is a senior environmental reporter for ProPublica, who frequently works with the New York Times magazine. He's written about global climate migration and is currently working on a book about migration in the United States. He lives in Marin County, California. Abram, good morning. I really appreciate you being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Jamie... I want to start with you, this this idea of, of, of climate migration, of moving because of climate change is obviously very personal for you. I'm hoping you can maybe start by sharing a bit of your personal story and maybe start with what it was like in California during the wildfire seasons there and, and talk a little bit about what, what prompted you to move. Yeah, um, I mean, this is an incredible, you know, an incredibly personal story, of course, for, for me and my family, but I do think um, it's one that we, we need to talk about. So I appreciate the opportunity um, to have that conversation today. Um, so as, you know, as, as Abram knows uh, more than, you know, anyone, uh, the last few years in, in California have seen some of the most horrific wildfire seasons on record. Um, this year, again, you know, with the, the Dixie fire just now over the weekend becoming the second largest fire in California history, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, my, I have two young kids and we lived in, in San Francisco for, for about 10 years. And, you know, it was the place where, where, you know, my, my kids were, were born and learned to ride bikes and had their, their first friendships, um, but we really, you know, after we have we have some health vulnerabilities um, to to the wildfire smoke that that had that has just gotten to be, you know, kind of a seasonal thing now in San Francisco. Um, so after you know about three years in a row of having to leave um, leave leave you know our home in San Francisco because of wildfire smoke and the effects that it was having 
um, on on my kids, um, you know, we just kind of said, this is not a sustainable um, place for us, for us to live anymore. Um, and of course, that was an incredibly painful decision. Um, and one that was really based on my family's unique vulnerabilities. Um, and I think one that um, many others, I, I think, are, are now are now thinking about as well. So how did you end up in Duluth? That's a great question. Um, so we, <laughs> <laughs> I get that a lot. Uh, so we I actually, bet you do. <laughs> yeah, especially because we, are, we arrived here just in time for winter. Um, so we, yeah, we kind of just loaded up into our camper van and drove, um, knew we wanted to just, you know, initially thought maybe we'll just spend the summer in Minnesota, um, just kind of, you know, I think with all of the the smoke in the Bay Area, we were just kind of looking at like, where is there cleaner air, you know, being close to a lake felt really nice. Um, so we just drove out and um, intended to just spend the summer here and then or the, the late summer and fall um, to ride out wildfire season. Um, but then, you know, wildfire season last year played out and it was so very, you know, um, extreme and it, it lasted so long into the fall. And we just kind of said, you know, we actually kind of love Duluth and things were not looking um, particularly compelling for us to, you know, to go back. And so we just decided to, to make it a permanent move and it's got, you know, natural beauty and incredible resilience and culture here and progressive leadership. Um, so we just, it, it felt like it hit all the right, the right notes for us. Well, it's good to have you here in in our, in our fair city. Um, I, I'm I'm curious, Jamie, if uh, you know your network of friends, colleagues in California, folks you talk to. I mean, you obviously work um, for a, for a climate change nonprofit, but is is it, have I, have you heard other conversations or people thinking about doing what you did, or do you know other people who has who have also taken the the plunge and and, and also moved because of of of, cl- of climate extreme weather in California? Yes. Um, yes, I have heard from many, many people um, who are sort of reaching out saying, you know, what's it like in Duluth? You know, can I can I get your real estate agent's phone number? Is there, you know, wanting wanting to know what it what it's like to live here? All people from the Bay Area who are thinking about, you know, th- about leaving. And I think that's what that that makes me have a little bit of anxiety about this and actually a lot of anxiety about about how this is happening and you know that it's primarily people with means that are doing this um and that it can't happen in silence or else it could really um you know unintentionally create you know exacerbate the existing inequities and and, and sort of um enable those with means to move. And, and so I just think we, we, we need to be having this conversation. Um, and, you know, I think as all of your listeners are aware, <laughs> Minnesota is certainly not immune from, from climate impacts. We had basically our entire month of July was impacted by the wildfire smoke from the Canadian wildfires. Um, so, you know, there's, there's really no getting away from climate change until we address the root cause of climate change, which is, you know, the, the, the accelerating buildup of greenhouse gases in our atmosphere. 
I, w- I want to get to to some of what you just brought up as we continue you know, the the issue of an, inequity in this, and and also the the crazy summer we've been experiencing. Um, so we're going to get to some of that, but I wanted to to bring in Abram to the conversation here. Abram, I'm just curious as a Californian yourself. I mean, how do you re- you know when you hear Jamie's story? Uh, I, I imagine you could you can re- relate to that on some level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, my personal experience is is not all that different from from Jamie's, and this has become a very personal issue for me. You know, around the same time that I've been reporting on it uh, professionally, but you know, um, the experience of the smoke, the experience of the risk here in this part of California is you know is very similar uh, you know to what Jamie described, and I have uh, you know young children as well, and um, you know the dilemma about uh, how to live with that or whether to leave. Uh, uh, you know, or flee from those conditions is is a part of our, you know, our daily uh, conversation, even though I haven't made that decision to, you know, to pack up and move. Um, and anecdotally, uh, you know, just as Jamie's saying, I mean, I know um, I have good friends who have who have moved. I hear that conversation all the time. My inbox is flooded with uh, people seeking advice on where to move and, you know, how do you make that decision and, and when is it time to move? And, you mm-hmm. know, to pull back a little bit, I mean, that was kind of the driver behind, um, you know, my interest in reporting on this over the last couple of years as well is to, is to really, start, you know, how, how do people respond to the climate change on them? Um, not just how is the climate changing, which is, I think, you know, the science conversation that dominates most of, uh, you know, what's in the media, um, the technical mm-hmm. measurements and the data about, you know, what's what's happening in the environment, but to really start thinking about how do we live in, in this new environment. Um, and it's, uh, it's something that, you know, I, I live with just as I, I report on and learn about it. So you brought up sort of these anecdotal stories you're hearing from from your friends and colleagues. Um, but, I mean, do you have a sense of how common it actually is for, for families like Jamie's to move? I mean, is, is, is it all anecdotal evidence at this point, or do we have data um, on, on how much this is happening? So, you know, I think it's early stages in, you know, what I expect will be, uh, you know, a transition that unfolds over the next couple of decades. Uh, So most of the information is anecdotal. Um, The way you see it in, uh, you know, in measurements is so so there's a larger number of Americans that are that are moving um, in general, but it's a strange year or time to measure that because we've also seen a flight out of cities due to COVID and a lot of sort of shuffling around as as people, you know, move into remote work environments. Um, You see shifts in other, uh, you know, kind of subtle ways, surveys around real estate, uh, surveys around uh, the public's capacity for or tolerance for climate change. Um, You know, there's a uh, an increase that those surveys show, you know, uh, an increasing impatience with, uh, you know, poor climatic conditions. And, and, uh, you know, more and more people, even a majority of people, Americans surveyed now say that, you know, they take climate into account in deciding where to move and that they wouldn't move, uh, you know, into a place with sort of poor climatic forecasts. So, you know, I mean, that's, um, that's kind of what the data shows, but we don't have specifics on, you know, who is moving where yet. And, you know, and actually from, you know, from a data science perspective in the United States and globally, that's, um, it's, it seems like a simple thing, but it's a difficult piece of, of data to have. Um, we use, uh, you know, U.S. Census data, um, and we collect it periodically and not often enough, uh, you know, to get a real sense of, um, of movement. 
Um, so it'll be a while before that picture clarifies and emerges. But, um, you know, as far as the, you know, the sort of uh, intersection between the, the anecdotal information and what actual data is available just suggests that, you know, we're starting to see movement out of um, the places most deeply affected. And so that's uh, California and places affected by wildfire smoke. To some degree, this, you know, the, the southwest and, and parts of, um, of west. Texas and and then the mm -hmm. Gulf Coast, which is really you know experiencing the most dramatic effects of seasons um, combined with you know the land subsidence that's um, really taking away an enormous amount of of land and property there. This morning we're talking about climate migration here on NPR News. Join the conversation by giving us a call at six five one two two seven six thousand. Chris from Minneapolis says I've been hearing a lot about people moving due to climate change. He says he's heard that may lead to a new refugee crisis. He says, I think migration has always happened, but I think it'll get worse. In a Mad Max scenario, he wonders people are going to be moving toward water-filled areas, even though we're in a drought here. And uh, let's go now to Kathy uh, in Duluth, uh, who it sounds like has been a climate change refugee here for, for even longer than Jamie. Kathy, thanks for calling in. What did you want to say? Yeah, hi. Um, I was a climate refugee in the late 90s. Um, I used to live in the Washington, D.C. area, which is known for its heat and, heat and humidity in the summers. But the air quality had uh, deteriorated so that I was getting respiratory infections at least once a year, usually twice. And uh, once I relocated in the Duluth area in 98, you know, I don't get sick as often. It's maybe once every three years. The, the air is just so much cleaner. Uh, I'm healthier for it. So you're happy you moved here? Oh, absolutely. Plus, I I love winter sports, so that did not deter me at all. <laughs> well, you're in the right place then. Kathy, thanks for calling. And, and one question I had for both of you, I'll start with Jamie, um, you know, jumping off of, of Kathy's experience. I mean, she talked about the air pollution, which, of course, can be climate related, but there are other factors there, too. Um, how... How difficult is it to sort of tease out the different factors that are causing migration? I mean, Jamie, I imagine it wasn't just climate or maybe not. I mean, were there other factors involved uh, in, in your decision to move as well? Yeah, um, it was it was primarily climate, I would say. I would say I am mm -hmm. sort of on the uh, the more uh, the front end of, of that curve, I think, just kind of being hyper attuned to you know, the climate crisis and sort of what's, you know, looking around the corner a bit. And, um, you know, I think with, with the way, with the trends that we had been seeing in California and just my, my awareness of how much we're actually addressing it and on what level and are corporations actually meeting their emissions reductions targets? Are we actually reducing the amount of greenhouse gases we're putting into the atmosphere? And, you know, all, all of those signs were not looking not looking great to me. Um, and so, so it was primarily, you know, it was primarily climate related, but, um, but, you know, of course, COVID this, the, the layering of having this, you know, this virus on top of wildfire season, um, was for, you know, for, for, for a family that already had some vulnerabilities in that respect looked, you know, looked especially, you know, especially, um, concerning. And so that did, you know, that did expedite the move, but it had been something that, you know, that we as a family had been, had been talking about um, from a climate, specifically climate perspective for a little while. Mm -hmm. Abram, in your reporting, 
I know you spent time in, in Latin America uh, tracking migrants there coming north. Um, I mean, there and other other folks you've talked to, is it? do you see multiple factors playing in often with people's decisions in addition to climate change, extreme weather events, et cetera? Yeah, of course. You know, so climate is, you know, best described as an exacerbating factor. Um, you know, the the Central Intelligence Agency calls it a, you know, a threat amplifier. Um, so so it's rarely, you know, the sole cause of migration, uh, you know, except maybe in cases of, uh, you know, extraordinary natural disasters. But what it almost always is, is, uh, you know, a factor that's in the mix along with, you know, economic opportunity or family allegiance or, um avoidance of violence and crime, which is, you know, a, a huge issue in, in Central America in particular. Um, you know, so people move and as your caller suggested, I mean, migration is is um, a logical and a natural uh, reaction to changing environments. It's always been that way and and it'll always be that way. What we're what we're talking about now is, you know, whether that that sort of pace and flow increases as a result of climate and um, you know, and so climate becomes one of the things in in the mix, along with all of these other, uh, you know, traditional factors that have always, um, you know, encouraged people to move. And, um, you know, what the modeling shows and what some of the research that I did for my reporting shows is that, you know, it, climate will be an in, ever increasing uh, factor. So, you know, it's subtle now uh, and, and mm-hmm. it's, you know, affecting the decision making of the people like Jamie, who are on the front end of thinking about that. But, um you know, what we might see in 10 years is that, uh, that it's a lot less subtle, uh, you know, that it, that it might become the driving factor or even the dominant factor. Um, but it's always, it's always one of many things in the mix, uh, you know, and, and as I think, you know, was mentioned, you know, mobility is a reflection of, of means as well. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so economics, um, both, uh, you know, the inability to move, but also, you know, the opportunity, uh, you know, in a new destination is always going to be you know, a big, big part of that, um, that decision making. And we're focused, you know, primarily on climate migration in the United States in this conversation. But Abram, before we go further, I I would like you to to help us understand this in a more global context, because um, obviously when we think about climate change and we think about rising sea levels, that has an impact on people in, in island nations, obviously. Also, I know there's been a lot of attention on on folks who grow their own food near the equator who are already experiencing severe impacts from from you know from heat and drought. So, talk to us briefly about what's happening now globally in terms of climate migration, and maybe also what's predicted to happen across the world. Yeah, absolutely. Here's the big picture, and there's a study uh, that I relied on heavily uh, came out in 2019 that basically looked at the human habitability zone uh, across the the planet. Uh, and, it, and it found that over the last 6,000 years, um, human beings have essentially lived in a very narrow band of environmental conditions. Uh, when you look at where the populations are around the planet, the, the conditions are surprisingly similar for where the population centers have always been. Um, and then it found that those population centers really for the, or, sorry, that the, the environmental conditions uh, really for the first time in thousands of years is dramatically shifting north. And as that happens, um, it it is projected to put about one fifth of the planet's population um, outside of that ideal zone of human habitability. Um, hmm. So uh, actually, the number is about uh, is about one third of the, of the planet. So about two billion people now, 3 billion people by about 2070, affecting one fifth wow. of, uh, of the, the land surface. Um, so that's a, a major global trend that basically suggests that 
large population centers in South Asia, in North Africa, in Central America will find themselves in conditions that aren't really optimal for, um, you know, for human habitation or haven't been, uh, you know, in, in any kind of recent recorded history. And it doesn't, uh, suggest exactly where they'll go, but uh, but environmental conditions will be better to the south and to the north, and there's more land uh, and more economic act- activity to the north, and so we typically see more migration heading north. Um, the hotspots globally are going to be, you know, uh, upwards of a billion people moving out of North Africa towards Europe. You're seeing that pressure now. We've seen it in the Syrian conflict and uh, and some of the, you know, uh, uh, destabilization around the Arab Spring um, going back to 2015. You can see it in South Asia, um, you know, the largest uh, continental population uh, in the world, and we're increasingly going to see it, uh, you know, on on our continents. Uh, People coming, you know, from uh, Central America in particular, which I looked at, but also, you know, to some degree, South America and probably heading uh, in larger numbers north towards the United States and and Canada. Um, If you take that same data and we tried to map it and it's it's low resolution because it's at a global scale. But if you look at how the United States changes, uh, how that human uh, habitability niche uh, moves, um, you know, just in terms of North America, um, our circumstances are far from uh, as extreme or as dire as, say, you know, North Africa or, or Central America. But the change will still be dramatic in, you know, in our context. And you see that the southern part of the United States shifts um, outside of that zone of kind of ideal human habitation. And so uh, uh, the sweet spot moves north towards Minnesota and towards the Canadian border. And, um, you know, if that is the, the sort of guide for, you know, for global uh, population movement, um, you can start to see what that suggestion means for the United States as well, which is just generally, uh, you know, a push of, um, you know, ideal conditions moving from the south towards the north. Uh, we're talking about climate migration here this morning on NPR News. Join the conversation by calling us at 651-227-6000. Let's go now to Mary Kay in Duluth. Mary Kay, thanks for calling. Uh, what's your What's your comment or your question? Hi, Dan. Just echoing what was just said about the sweet spot moving north. I'm originally from this area, lived in Madison for a long time. My husband's from North Carolina, and around 2006, we started talking about moving north, and it may sound kind of silly, but Madison was getting too hot for me. Hmm. And also, this is partly based on conversations with Dr. John Magnuson, who's an emeritus professor at Madison and one of the authors of many on the original UN climate report, and he was showing models that Madison was going to be like southern Missouri. Um, and they, we can see those effects now. You know, even in even 15 years ago in Madison, there was about a month less of lake ice. And, you know, looking at the 2012 flood here and now the wildfire smoke, it's just, I think we're all seeing the effects much sooner than we anticipated. Mary Kay, thanks for calling. Jamie, I'm I'm curious if you're surprised that you've heard about, we've had a couple of folks call in now today um, who have moved to Duluth for climate-related reasons much earlier than you. Is that is that surprising to you? I, it is, actually. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, um, I, I think I think we're all, you know, I, I certainly um, didn't expect that there, there would have been a lot of this um, in the last decade, but it sounds like, yeah, Mary Kay was, was was ahead on the on this story, um, but I think you know, and she rightly points out the you know the UN climate report 
um, from from back then. And and just this morning, there was you know the uh, the the sixth assessment report now of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that you know very clearly spells out the links between you know, what were between the wildfires in California and, and in Canada and, you know, and, and calls out those links um, unequivocally um, between them and, and climate change. And, you know, it spells out that we are seeing this warming in on all parts of the planet. And so, um, you know, I think there is, I just keep coming back to this, you know, to this idea that like, yes, there may be some areas that are, um, more habitable than others. There will certainly be places that bear disproportionate um, impacts and have already been for decades um, that Abram's work so so powerfully um, illustrates. Um, but this is something that we are all in together and that we need to both be looking at how we, you know, how, how we keep ourselves um, safe or, or try our best to keep ourselves safe and at the same time, how we work to uh, address this this crisis at the root cause to keep it from getting even worse. And let's go back to the phones. We've got a couple people holding on. Let's go to Edward in Rochester. Edward, thanks for calling. What did you want to say? Uh, hello. One of the things that people bring with them when they move is their vote. Is anyone seriously looking at or thinking about how political uh, colors of states might change as these moves take place? It's an interesting question, Edward. Uh, Abram, it might be too early to answer that question, but I'm curious if, you, if, you've, if you've seen any data on that or if you've heard discussion of that. Uh, there's lots of discussion about it. I, I'm not expert on what the data says, but there's certainly people studying it. I mean, you know, a, uh, a joke has always been and, and is getting louder now, you know, uh, about Californians uh, exporting their politics along with their, their migration. Uh, you know, obviously, Californians aren't the only ones moving about the country, but that's, uh, you know, that's one um you know, large uh, population that's shifting around. I think absolutely there's an expectation that, you know, the politics of the country and, and you know, some of um, sort of the, the uh, you know, the norms that we think we know about, you know, each state, um, you know, is, is subject to, to shift as, you know, as demographics shift. But I don't have a lot of, a lot of fine point detail on, on exactly where those trends are headed. Sure. Jamie, I wonder if you wanted to weigh in on that. I know you mentioned that the Duluth's politics may have played a role, uh, some, somewhat of a role in your decision to come here. Yeah, I mean, well, it was definitely one of the first things we did when, when we moved to Minnesota was to register to vote um, before the, the presidential election. Um, but I, I do think, you know, that was that was something we looked at was, you know, our, our local leaders you know, preparing to to face this crisis head on, are are they acknowledging um, what's happening, to, and and are they are they building resilience, looking to build resilience in, you know, in in these cities? So that that was that was definitely a priority for us. And um, here in Duluth, you know, I've been really impressed by by our local leaders and the civic engagement um, of of people in in these issues. And let's go back to the phones uh, for another caller from Duluth. Joseph, um, another climate or maybe a, a weather migrant might be a more accurate description. Joseph, thanks for calling. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm originally from New York, uh, Long Island, and I was in the, the Navy for 20 years and then uh, was down at Scott Air Force Base in southern Illinois for about 16. And the weather 
you know, at first it seemed to be pleasant, but then the heat and humidity was both higher and came much earlier. And when we decided uh, we wanted to look for a place to retire, uh, Duluth became it. Unlike most of my coworkers who were going in the other direction, which I just thought was basically nuts. So we moved up here, and and then we uh, after moving up here in 2017 and eighteen, um, we heard about the was it the Harvard professor who did the research on climate refugees in the lower forty eight, and he said there were two places in the United States, and I think it was Buffalo and Duluth. So we're really glad we moved here because the, the weather is so much nicer. Yeah, the winters are harsh, but the rest of the year is just fantastic. Joseph, thanks for that. And um, thanks for bringing up. Yeah, you brought up a study um, um, that was recently done by uh, uh, by Jesse Keenan, who was at Harvard at the time, but I believe is at Tulane now. Um, he identified Duluth as a, as a prime relocation spot for climate refugees. Um, and it got a lot of attention. The New York Times sent a reporter out here. Um, he even created these sort of tongue-in-cheek marketing marketing slogans for Duluth, like um, Duluth, not as cold as you think. Um, and I have to I have to admit, Jamie, I wanted to throw this to you because um, you know I, when I first saw that, I was I I, I sort of poo pooed it. You know, as somebody who's lived here for ten years now, um, you know, the winters here can last for seven months. In June, if we get a cold wind off the lake, it can be forty degrees. When it's when it's eighty down in the Twin Cities, um, I I I'm, I guess I'm curious for you to weigh in on that and um and also that that study because I know um you didn't even know about that study right before um before you moved here is that right? That's right. Yeah, we we learned about it when we when after we had moved here um, and sort of we're like, wow, this this is this is a pretty nice um, coincidence, uh, but. I mean, I do, you know, coming from the Bay Area, it, I, we, all, I always, we always said, you know, that San Francisco and, and the broader the Bay Area is just in a very difficult place to leave because of how beautiful it is and the natural yeah. beauty. And, and then, you know, I have to say, we have, we have really fallen in love with, with Duluth. So even, you know, even in the wintertime, there, there is, it does, you know, some people jokingly refer to it as the the is it the san francisco of the midwest or something like that um and and if you squint your eyes maybe yeah yeah but it really does have um it's a very special place and um and i can see why you know we we make the winters fun and you know i have been just been so impressed by the by the resilience of of people here and and how much people you know really do um enjoy the outdoors every every month of the year You've got to embrace it. Now, Jamie, I wanted to ask you, you wrote an essay a couple weeks ago for CNN um, in which you talked about your experience and you gave some advice for people thinking of moving to escape climate change impacts. And I'm going to quote just a bit of your article. You say, be an early warning for communities that have yet to experience the devastating effects of the climate crisis. Use your climate story to sound the alarm. Could you talk a bit more about what what you meant by that? Yeah, Um I mean, I think when when we were going through our process of deciding whether to to you know to relocate permanently and how to share that news and that that our story with people, I realized that I was like I was sort of not wanting to talk about it. I, I was feeling a sense of guilt and you know like how do I tell you know how do I tell this to my neighbors back in San Francisco? Like this, I don't want this to seem 
alarming and I don't, you know, and, and I, and I don't want it to seem as though I'm, we're giving up on California. And so my instinct was to like, kind of do this in silence and, and not really share about, about the story. And then I realized that that, that isn't serving anyone. You know, I think, I think this is, this is a conversation that absolutely needs to be talked about and it needs to be broadcasted loudly that, you know, that, that this is starting to happen and that people who, you know, have a little, have maybe more information than others about, about the climate crisis or, or are more able to have the luxury of thinking about it more than others. We should be sharing that, you know, that knowledge and that, that information with others and try, you know, democratizing the information about, about what's happening. Um, and I think the more that, that we can, that we can do that we can make the you know that we can transition and and make these make these decisions for ourselves and our communities the more that we can do that in as part of a global conversation um the better will be you know the, the better we'll be able to do it in a way that um ensures you know or, or at least tries to ensure equity and that you know we're not exacerbating like inequities in the places we're moving to. We're not driving up house prices, which is already happening here in Duluth. Um, you know, and that, and that we're still focusing on the most important work there is, which is building a world in which, you know, in, in which we can, all people can thrive. Um, so I think, I think talking about it as in our communities that we're moving to and the communities that we're moving from is, is paramount. You brought up that 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 question of equity again, um, and and home prices. You know, we are we are seeing real estate prices rise here. I mean, obviously, um, uh, we might complain about the or folks. Some folks might complain about the expensive housing here, but I know it's nothing compared to what compared to what you left in the Bay Area. I mean, is should folks be concerned about that? I mean, if if a lot of folks move from from California from elsewhere, I mean, could that have a disruption on on, on real estate and some of these equity issues? I mean, I, I certainly, I would be interested in hearing Abram's um, insights here, but I, I certainly think so. And I, I think it's already, it's already happening. I mean, I hear anecdotally, you know, we're getting out of town offers on houses, you know, that sell within a couple hours at two times asking price. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm hearing anecdotally these stories of um, never before seen, you know, housing uh, competition for housing here in Duluth, and of course, that's not just because of climate change, as 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 has been discussed. But um, right, I think right. that is one of the driving factors, and um, and yes, absolutely, I think that can that that could and and would lead to increased inequity in in these in these places if we don't do it in a in a thoughtful. Um, and sort of, you know, um, strategic way. Yeah. Ibram, I'm, I'm curious um, um, if you have any thoughts to weigh in on that. I mean, I think you're seeing that sort of appreciation uh, in property values across the country. And I think it's a short-term trend that, uh, you know, is largely response to, you know, the movement out of urban areas during the COVID year. But it's also, you know, a signal uh, for, for what the longer-term trend might be as, you know, places like like Duluth and, uh, you know, in the northern part of the United States become more attractive, uh, you know, in terms of climate refugees. 
um, or climate migration, I should say. Uh, you know, but there's there's deep, deep threads of of inequities inter you know interlaced with everything that we're talking about today. And you know, one part of it is you know is this climate gentrification is you know what happens uh, you know as you know as you know wealthy or privileged people move into an area, uh, you know, who do they displace? Um, but another whole part of the conversation, and it's going to be a really important com- part of the conversation, is you know is who is who's left behind. Um, you know, the, this sort of structural inequities, um, you know, that have been tied to, you know, real estate, for example, in this country for the better part of a century, redlining of neighborhoods, for example, um, you know, have, have, you know, proven to be a, you know, a persistent pattern, um, where, you know, uh, the people negatively affected by it, uh, today have, you know, created less wealth and thus have, you know, uh, less mobility and fewer options, uh, you know, to change where they live and how they live in the face of uh, changing climate. And the people who benefited most from those policies are, you know, the people who have the mobility and the asset, um, you know, creation to be able to move uh, around the country and kind of choose their best place. And um, the flip side of that is the kind of government investment and, and um, community investment that's going to be needed to build resilience and to adapt to changing climate. And whether that's in, you know, in Duluth or in, uh, you know, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, uh, uh, you're going to see communities that have a large enough tax base uh, to uh, build the kind of infrastructure that they need, whether that might be seawalls or new water treatment facilities or flood levees, um, to protect themselves against, uh, you know, changing environmental conditions. And there are going to be, uh, you know, very significant parts of, of this country, uh, significant parts of every single state, including Minnesota, probably more rural areas, which won't have that same kind of, uh, you know, capital to invest. And I think that, you know, that's one of the big equity trends and issues to, you know, to watch out for going forward is, you know, what's the, what becomes the divide, um, both between, you know, people of color and, and, uh, you know, and Caucasian communities, but also rural and urban, uh, and, you know, and what's now, you know, simply wealthier and poorer communities, the people on, you know, the negative ends of those spectrums are uh, going to have to fight harder if they're not, uh, you know, compensated uh, for if, if the system doesn't compensate for, for those inequities in order to protect themselves, uh, you know, against climate. Lacey uh, wrote on Twitter that her family moved to Duluth in 2017 to get out of the poor air quality and winter inversion in Utah Valley, only to have several days of poor air quality this summer due to wildfires in Canada. Climate change is inescapable, but we certainly feel safer here Jamie, I'm curious what you thought when this wildfire smoke from from Canada descended upon Minnesota today. We had some of the for a stretch, we had some of the poorest air quality anywhere. I mean, did you feel like did you feel a sense of deja vu this this summer? It, yes, it felt like it felt like the earth was uh was was giving us a really important message, which was just that you can't, uh, you, you can't run away from this. Um, but yeah, it was, it was very poignant for us. Um, I'm sure as, as Abram can attest, there's a, you know, the, the smells of, of wildfire smoke in the air bring back like very visceral, almost like PTSD, um, for, for us. And I think for a lot of people, um, and so it came with a lot of emotions and at the same time, um, sort of a, felt like it, it, it galvanized me to to just sort of use this this moment to to try to you know um, get out the word that that just 
nowhere, you know, the, nowhere is safe until we address this, until we address this issue at the root cause. Let's go back to the phones. Conrad in International Falls up on the Canadian border has been waiting patiently. Conrad, thanks for calling. What did you want to, what did you want to contribute? Uh, we actually live in Dallas, but on an island on oh. Lake of the Woods, north of uh, International Falls. And for those that don't know, the Canadian border opened last night at 1201. Uh, mm-hmm. We've been in line here since 6 a.m. this morning. The line actually started at 8 last night. Uh, we anticipate it'll take 10 to 12 hours because a couple reasons where it might tie in. One, we haven't been able to visit our properties for two years. And two, um, in my lifetime, 65 years of being on Lake of the Woods, we would never have one or two days of 90 degree days. And now we're getting weeks of it. So, I mean, I've literally added air conditioning on an island running off solar and backup generators Hmm. up in Canada. So in my lifetime, I've absolutely seen it. So you've seen significant changes and and here in Duluth, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a hot summer and I know a lot of folks here in Duluth as well don't have air conditioning. Um, and it's, uh, that's part of the, the, the adaptation to climate, a change in climate that we've talked about. Conrad, thanks for calling. Let's go to Keith now in Roseville. Who's also called in Keith. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Um, I just wanted to make the observation that um, Minnesota, instead of being a refuge from climate change, at least south of uh, Duluth, is suffering from climate change as much as anywhere else. I'm 69 years old. I'm an avid uh, cross-country skier. And except for the fact that we have three areas now with snowmaking, um, I'm just seeing my cross-country ski seasons getting shorter and shorter, uh, usually January through February. And with the few areas that have snowmaking, that gets extended into March. Um, and so um, can't necessarily get away from it here in um, the Twin Cities area which obviously has been suffering from the summer's heat as much as anywhere else. Um, I'll just further observe, we recently went camping, uh, which we do with friends every year around the 4th, and uh, absent uh, uh, air conditioning in our pop-up trailer, it would have been insufferable. Um, It's just um, gotten that significant, and people forget that we're seeing uh, Changes in the northern uh, areas of the nation and the world than um, our southern counterparts. Keith, thanks for the call. Uh, important observations. Minnesota is definitely experiencing climate change in terms of more extreme rainfall events, warmer winters, like you talked about, less um, less 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 uh, cold nights, especially in the winter. Um, Abram, I wanted to bring up a point um, that we haven't talked about yet. We've talked to a lot of folks who have moved north, but lots of people in the United States are still moving south. Uh, It's long been a phenomenon here with Minnesotans, you know, snowbirds heading to Arizona, to Florida. But that's still happening for the general population as well. Um, And could you talk a little bit? I mean, my understanding is that policy might be playing a role there. Could you could you talk a little bit about about how that's playing out? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the first first thing is that, you know, historically and for kind of, uh, you know, reasons we can all understand, uh, you know, Americans, like many people, are attracted to the coasts and they're attracted to, you know, sunshine and, and nice, warm, dry weather. And so places like Phoenix and Florida, you know, have always been popular. Um, but those, you know, those tendencies have been reinforced by, you know, decades of, uh, of policy, as you mentioned. Um, the big one is insurance policy. So, you know, we uh, uh, are able to buy insurance in the, in places that have a greater amount of weather or climate risk, uh, in part because it's subsidized. And as those places, many of those places have gotten more, uh, risky, uh, the insurance has become increasingly subsidized, you know, so, so we've seen, you know, Florida's population has just boomed over the last, um, two decades and it's, uh, boomed while the state has, while most of the private insurance industry has fled the state and, and deemed properties that are uninsurable, you know, due to hurricanes and sea level rise. But the state has stepped in and, um, and subsidized that and become, you know, its own largest private insurer. And you're seeing, you know, a similar, uh, 31 states now have, you know, those state subsidized insurance policies, and they're becoming increasingly popular in California as well, um, you know, to protect properties against wildfire risk. And what this has done, you know, over the long haul is, um, you know, is mute the signals. Uh, so, so when people are, you know, taking into account their various factors of, uh, you know, what makes them want to move it, uh, you know, it's ten tended to, uh, you know, take the climate risk off of the table, uh, or lessen the perception that a place is risky in the, in the first place. You know, so, so there is, uh, you know, there's long been a demographic movement into, uh, these at risk areas because they're seen as more desirable. And, uh, and then there's long been, you know, a list of perverse incentives, uh, like insurance, uh, which have, uh, if not drawn people outright have made it easier, uh, you know, to, to ignore, um, the dangers. Um, that's a trend, uh, you know, the, the experts I talk to think that that's a trend that's slowing. Uh, you're starting to see the policy shift. Uh, you're starting to see, as I mentioned earlier, you know, a little bit of a public perception shift about, you know, climate risks and other, uh, environmental risks, uh, in geographic locations. Um, but it's also probably something that's not going to reverse overnight. So we're not going to see like a, a, a switch flip and people stop moving to Arizona. Uh, it's going to be sort of a gradual reversal. Um, eventually more people leaving than, you know, than are coming, um, probably over the next, you know, decade, decade and a half. Yeah. And, and just lastly, we've only got about a minute or so left, but, um, I wanted to ask about, d- does, this this issue is obviously a a serious issue. Um, it, it, it's climate change is a threat in many areas, but it also does it also provide opportunity for places like Duluth, Minnesota. You know, in terms of attracting new people, um, you know, um, helping boost the population, which has been pretty stagnant here in Duluth for decades. Um, real quick, I'll, I'll I'll put it to you first, Abram, and then maybe to Jamie to close. Yeah, um, you know, a quick summary. We looked at, um, uh, I looked at a number of, uh, you know, climate factors across the country that portray the risks, but some of those also portray the benefits. So, uh, you know, the northern part of the United States, including Minnesota, uh, according to the data I looked at, might see increasing crop yields, might see increasing economic activity. Um, so those are two, you know, two things in the plus column. Uh, and as you see, you know, the expansion of cities and urban areas, of course, there's more economic opportunity and, you know, and growth that goes along with that. Abram, I'm going to have to stop you there. Uh, Abram Lustgarden is a senior environmental reporter for ProPublica. Also joining us today, and Jamie, I'm sorry I couldn't get back to you. Jamie Alexander moved from San Francisco to Duluth because of climate. She's director of Drawdown Labs at Project Drawdown. You've been listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. 
You can hear Dan Crocker, Nina Moyni, Chris Farrell, and other guest hosts during a live call-in show at 9 a.m. weekdays throughout the month of August. Looking for Carrie Miller? She's back talking about books and ideas at 11 a.m. every Friday starting September 10th. Thanks for listening.